0: It's a theme I've learned in entrepreneurship. It's as long as you're surrounded by smarter people who are experts at what they're doing, your job is to get the heck out of the way.
1: And the less intelligent you are, the easier it is to find people who are smarter than you.
0: Yes, sir. It's, it's, it's made my <laughs> life easier.
1: <laughs> Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. An area of technology entrepreneurship that I follow for its relevance to politics is software that's used by nonprofits. My guest today, Najid Kassam, is a very interesting practitioner in that field. He started and runs a company called Keela that provides software for numerous smaller nonprofits. We had a good talk about his path to the startup and his perspective on technology entrepreneurship in a social mission space. You should listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Najid Kassam of Keela. Well, Najid, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: My name is Najeed. Uh I'm a recovering corporate lawyer. I'm the son of a couple of immigrants from East Africa who left um, East Africa during, you know, less than ideal times, fleeing um, what they perceived to be potential violence and persecution from Tanzania. They found themselves in England and really sort of started our, our family's life again there, um... I was born in Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. I was so privileged to have so many blessings in my life and kind of, um, through, through the first 36 years now of my life, I've sort of had kind of three core things that have defined me, um, my commitment to to, 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 service, my love of sports, um, and kind of like an entrepreneurial obsession that was, has come across through, for-profit and nonprofit ventures. Uh, I practiced law for a few years, corporate commercial litigation. The entrepreneurial bug was still there. Uh, I couldn't couldn't shed it no matter how hard I tried. And so I started Keela off the side of my legal desk in Toronto. And in 2016, I made the full-time 2016. I got married, moved across the country back home to Vancouver, um, and kind of made the jump to being a, a full-time CEO as a grown-up. And so that's what I've been doing for the last five years now
1: cool i have a kind of neighboring interest in nonprofit software having started a political campaign software company and one that went into the nonprofit space mainly after my leadership was over there i've certainly watched the market for that kind of category of software for uh, more than 20 years and so i have i have a sense of of sort of the different waves of innovation and and companies that have come and gone or come and stayed and grown. And Mm -hmm. I I thought it would be interesting to talk to you coming at it from a little bit of a different angle than other people. You talked about your past, but you didn't get into a lot about uh, any of the specifics. I want to ask you first about some of that, because I think it tells about who you are and and your motivations. Grew up in Canada and went to a Canadian university. Tell me about like what you studied there and how you started to interact with the workforce.
0: So it's interesting because the latter part of that question came a long time before the former part of that question. Um, So I started my first business when I was 13. It was like a marketing company. It was my first entrepreneurial venture. It wasn't my first job, but it was my first kind of big job. I'd done lots of odd jobs and you know, I was an athlete, I was a tennis player, I guess I still am, but I'm not as good as I used to be. Um, And we wanted back in those days, cell phones weren't a thing, right? So we wanted my brothers and I who were 18 months younger than me, there's twins, we wanted to get a video camera to film our serves, because you know, we wanted to get better. And, you know, my, my mom and dad, they're dentists and they did fine, but they weren't just going to buy. In those days, there was like thousands of dollars and you had to get a big computer. And you remember, a lot of the young people won't, but you remember. And so they said, my dad said to us, look, I'll loan you the money to buy a camera, but you got to, and I'll be your first customer, but you got to go out there and earn the money back. And sort of he ignited in us, this entrepreneurial thing. We made a ton of money for kids. We did You know, videos and graphics design and business cards and menus for restaurants. We just learned it as we did it. We learned sales and marketing. Like we learned it as, you know, 13, 14 year olds, as my brothers are, like I said, 18 months younger than me. And throughout high school, we just sort of had that in our pockets. We did it alongside our other jobs and school and training. But that was where I really started to learn about the workforce. On the note of tennis, I actually had an opportunity to play at a school in the US. Um, Both of my brothers played sports. Actually, all three of them played sports in the U.S. Um, I decided to stay in Canada. I had uh, flirted in the political world. I had worked on campaign staffs and I interned and whatever. And I realized that I really wanted to stay home. Uh, I moved across the country to Montreal, to McGill, um, where I kind of, I would say like my next big entrepreneurial venture while I was in school was founding what became a national charity. It was called End Poverty Now. Um, it spread across the country. Uh, it was really amazing. And so, you know, being a student of political science, working in politics in the summers, and then running a national nonprofit, kind of gave me a really interesting um, vantage point for for what I guess came many years later.
1: Do you play uh, tennis for McGill?
0: I did play. T- I played varsity for McGill. I did. I did. I had a lot of fun.
1: I mean, I think that kind of competitive experience helps also in the, in the world of, of business doesn't it?
0: well losing like one thing every athlete gets really good at is losing whether you unless your name is Roger Federer you're gonna lose and you're gonna lose often especially as a kid probably more often than not and so I think the the discipline the ability to bounce back the I used to get up at 6 a.m no earlier. I used to start practice at 6 a.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday from like twelve to sixteen or something like that. My poor dad, who had to drive us. I feel like those lessons really, really well translated to you know, kind of the business world and and entrepreneurship and and dealing with unforeseen circumstances and challenges. And I think your instinct is, is really dead on there. I think great athletes and I was not a great athlete, by the way, I want to be clear, but those who, ast- you know, aspire to greatness, they learn a lot of those lessons that serve them well for the next 60 years when they inevitably drop off as athletes.
1: I noticed that you went to Oxford during your time there. Is that a uh, part of a big scholarship? Or um, just it?
0: It was almost part of a big scholarship. How about that? And so I went to Oxford for, so I was, shortlisted for a big scholarship. And I I didn't get it. And again, teaching about resilience and rejection. But I thought I'd go for all the wrong reasons, to be honest with you. And I did my my first um, of, of what would have been many years there. Uh, and And I actually was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, Crohn's colitis. And so, yeah, it's terrible. It's really a horrific disease. And I feel for all the folks who struggle with it. I'm really lucky. I've been on medication for Thirteen or something, twelve, like a long time, um, and it's been really stable. But so I was fighting my disease and trying to do my school, my my master's, and I was likely going to do my PhD in, in politics. And I decided, you know what, I need my mom. I need to come home. And so I left. I guess my brothers like to call me an Oxford dropout, and technically I am. Um, I dropped out. I went into remission, and then I went to law school here in Canada. So um, being there, working there before, and, and you know, kind of. Through, through my degree, I, I learned a lot as well. And I think, again, my father always talks about intellectual humility, nothing more humbling than lying in a hospital bed with your blackberry going off and you can do nothing about it. You just sort of sit there and it was a good lesson for all the wrong reasons, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah. I think a lot of life is like that, fortunately or unfortunately,
0: I would say um, fortunately, most of the time, but you know, I, I think, yeah, yeah.
1: What what did you learn from that national nonprofit that you started? Tell me about a little bit about that. I
0: learned a lot. So I learned a lot about people, um, and you know, decentralized leadership and, um, what makes people tick, how, if you can inspire a group of folks who might have different backgrounds and different divergent opinions towards a common cause. And for us, it was poverty alleviation in grassroots projects. You really can do special things. And it was quite remarkable. I also learned how crappy, excuse my te- technical term, people are at fundraising. And I think this was really good learning for me. I think I learned about the brokenness of fundraising in the world and how there's these big divides between big orgs and rich people and grassroots fundraising. And I don't mean that in a political sense. I mean that for the nonprofit sector. I'd done fundraising since I was a little kid going door to door and you know, as part of the service mandate of my family values. But I think it was in that that I learned how disorganized, uh, often dysfunctional, and how there's huge opportunities to begin the transformation of of how people give. I also learned something really interesting uh, about Canadians and Americans, I think. We're not taught how to give. I think this is really interesting, because in generations past, when you had synagogues and churches and mosques and temples, that were the primary um, institutions of giving, they taught and they socialized and they ramped you up into giving. It became part of, you you learned how to eat, you learned how to shower, you learned how to save, you learned how to give, right? And so with the role of the church, and I say that in a bigger sense, you know, receding over the past two generations, I think we've not filled that gap. And it's a problem that I think still exists. And one that neither technology nor the sector is really head on either admitting or facing or engaging with. And so I think that was a really big lesson that I first saw that, both that opportunity and that unfortunate circumstance.
1: I guess that's part of of this theme of entrepreneurship too. Like starting a nonprofit is not terribly different than starting a for-profit.
0: No, and I think some people like get mad at me and they call me sort of a heathen for saying that entrepreneurship is entrepreneurship. You're you're building something from nothing. You're solving a specific problem. You're raising money or capital or borrowing or whatever to to execute on that. You should be measuring results. It's the same thing. It's a corporate structure difference. Yeah, there's fine-tuning differences and charitable law and 501c3 law and whatever, but really it's about solving a problem and 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 deploying resources in the most effective and efficient way possible to do it. So so I, I I strongly believe in that. A lot of people don't like it when I say that though.
1: Why law school with all of those <laughs> impulses?
0: <laughs> you know, I grew up in a family of professionals. Nathaniel, I don't know what to say. When I was 13 my mom and dad had like a birthday party for me with all their friends and a few of mine, but it was mostly their friends. I don't really know why. It was like, a. and I remember giving a speech as a 13 year old and I got up on the stage or it wasn't a stage, it was like the front of the room at my mom and dad's house in their living room. And I said, I'm gonna go to law school. I honestly don't know that I knew what law school was to be blunt. And it kind of rode the roller coaster over the next 10 years between saying that and actually starting it. What I will tell you is a couple things. Firstly, I got a chance to work at the Senate of Canada during my undergrad and after. I saw law happen. I saw it being built. I saw it being negotiated. I kind of got this romanticized idea that it touches, and it's true, it touches every part of what we do from the water we drink to the food we eat to the roads we drive to the video game stamps on front you know, and so if you want to enact and create great change in society, you should probably understand how the sausages are made and how law is built and what the ramifications are. And so with this very, you know, kind of, I would say like early Obama idea of hope, you know, uh, uh, I I had this, you know, beautiful belief uh, in in law and I love being a lawyer. Um, But I just think both politics and law moves a little slowly for me. And that's one thing I kind of learned, you know, practicing and working a little bit in the corporate world and whatever. I like to go fast. I like to break things. I like to solve problems. And I think that's where entrepreneurship kind of captured my fancy.
1: Well, tell me just a little bit about your law career until you come out of it.
0: So it was short. I want to be really clear about that. It was only a couple of years. And I would add, I was seconded for a year during um, the end of my law school to a refugee clinic. So look, my father-in-law was a refugee. My mom and dad fled. They weren't technically refugees, but they were scared out of their minds, you know, left as 10-year-olds. So I thought, given my service mandate, my love of impact and you know, social change, I could do refugee law. I do not have the emotional strength to do refugee law. So I spent like nine or 10 months doing it as a law student. And I thought that was like a very natural way I would start my practice, work at a refugee law or immigration law clinic. Refugee law clinics are very understaffed. So you're like almost graduated. You're basically working as a lawyer essentially, right? With supervision, but you are. And I had a client who, um, who had been, some horrible things have been done to her in a country that was not this one, then she was went into the police custody uh, to to get protection from the police, and she got um, she got raped by a police officer, who was still texting her, and the refugee court said that. It was a single incident. the persecution, the rape was not, you know, it didn't qualify for refugee status. And I, I remember I was driving, I used to have an old Volkswagen Golf, no air conditioning, no roll up windows. I remember being in it, driving where I was on the street. And I was like, I, I can't do this. I can't feel, and she was deported. I mean, just like it happens. I was like, and, you know, Canada's got a great immigration system, but I just, I was like, there are people who are stronger than I am. That need to do this. I am just not qualified. And emotionally, how about that? It was not that I wasn't a good or bad lawyer. And so I was like, you know what I don't care about? People's money. So I'm gonna go be a commercial litigator. Because at the worst case, two corporations lose money. One of them loses, you know, I don't care that much. It's not that I didn't care, it's that I just didn't want the weight of that previous thing. And so I spent a couple years doing that and you know, (laughs) litigating insurance you know companies or big corporate stock plans or whatever they were and that's actually where i got introduced to charitable law which was really cool because during those couple of years one of the partners at my firm did a lot of work in nonprofit and charity law and i was fascinated by it i became like the the young you know lawyer articling student who did all the work for him it reaffirmed my love of our sector and th- and then i'd sort of started this 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 Tech company, which I actually wanted to be a nonprofit, by the way, but nobody would fund it. Um, and so um, on the side of my desk. And so, and that's sort of where it happened. It was kind of a roundabout answer, but I hope it answered your question.
1: How would you articulate the founding story for Kila then?
0: Yeah. I was sitting on the board of a nonprofit in Toronto called Conversations for Change. Um, we built social justice curricula to put into the Toronto School Board district. We wanted to teach kids about impact, social change. And this is before this was sexy. This is like, you know, like 2011, 2010, 2012, that kind of time. I think we had a hundred thousand dollar budget. Um, we had a couple of early donors and we, we were really lucky. We, I produced a film and called conversations for change. And that was about youth social change makers in Canada. And it parlayed into this nonprofit. I was the, I think the youngest or the second youngest person on the, on the board. And it was a very active board. It was like a small nonprofit where the board basically does all the work, right. Except for the one paid staff member. And they're like, oh, you're young. And I was like, oh yeah, but you know, you know about technology. No, but such as it is, go find us our donor management tools. Go find us the thing that we're going to use. I guess what we'll call a CRM now. And Nathaniel, I didn't know. It from a slice of bread. When I was at End Poverty Now, we were so into spreadsheets. Like we lived by our spreadsheets. And so I went out there and I was, I guess, disappointed by the quality of the tools for the 90% of nonprofits that are doing less than 2 million bucks or 3 million bucks a year, you know? And I was like, there's gotta be better. You can't just take, you know, discounted tools you can't just cut stuff from big enterprise software and do do well by this customer base. And so I was like, we've got to be better. And I knew nothing and I still don't know a ton about tech, but I was like, I could build that. And, you know, <laughs> those are those words every entrepreneur utters and probably regrets one day. But um, that was sort of the origin story. It started as a problem I desperately needed to solve. And it's a problem I still desperately want to solve.
1: So if you're not a technologist, not a programmer by training um how do you go about building a piece of software to solve a problem find
0: an amazing partner i think that's the key find somebody and like i I gotta give you know my we didn't even have co-founder titles any of that but like what my now on our linkedin is called my co-founder then it was just like Wayne. that's what he was right he's like wayne he's a software engineer or is a mechanical engineer that went into software and him and I sat down one day and we're like, you know, there's a real opportunity here. Let's do some change. I'd met him through a colleague from McGill. So he went to McGill, but I didn't know him at McGill. He's a couple of years younger than me. And he's like, I can build this. And he kind of went into his hole and we started it And we thought it was the beta. And that's kind of how it happened. And to this day, he's, he's our CTO and he's my, one of my best friends. And you find smarter people than you are. And there's no doubt in my mind that Wayne is, you know, markedly smarter than
1: What did Wayne build it in, do you know?
0: No, I don't. I know that now what we have it in, I know now we use MongoDB and Angular and Vue and all these things I don't really understand, but then I have no idea. I know it was JavaScript though. It was a JavaScript with some kind of database, a relational database framework.
1: Yeah, so as you get going, it was basically the two of you for a while, is that right?
0: Well, technically it was just him. I was still practicing law. This is a good story. I had a line of credit for law school. And when I graduated, I had one year where I could still draw upon the funds. Okay. And I hadn't drawn all of them. So I drew all the money out of my line of credit, um, which probably, you know, it's what entrepreneurs do. I'm not a rich guy. I don't, you know, I didn't have um, money to fund it, but I wanted to pay Wayne and I wanted to pay one other person. After it was built, we kind of started and we borrowed and we, you know, you know, we did all the things early entrepreneurs have to do, and for us, for for like a year while I was still, while he was still building, you know, kind of 2015 to 2016, uh, we we sort of just did it, the two of us, right, and a, a couple of, of folks helping out, and you know, we used to pay consultants with equity. So there's like these, you know, 15 people on our cap table who own like 0.01 percent or whatever because they were paid, you know, for the work they would do, whether it was sales or marketing or user experience or whatever it might be. And so testing, it started as us. We did a beta, we threw it out there and I just called every nonprofit I knew and said, we're giving this away for free, try it. And we had some really great success. People were like, oh, you mean there's an actual tool for small nonprofits to do all the things? And then you know, we got a ton of feedback. We need to have compliance in there. And that's where we started to think about it. We looked at what other, other CRMs were doing and we, we felt they weren't innovating. A lot, and they also felt that their user experience was pretty bad. And for us, we said if we're serving this sector of the market, the user is not going to be a super technical person. You're not going to have a database administrator. Let's make this so easy that someone's mom can use it. That was our metric, like in our head. That was a very technical, you know, vision we had. And and then we went to the beta, and then we did the 1.0, and then that was what I when the 1.0 released, I left my legal job, and that was towards the end of 2016.
1: Almost everybody who I've ever talked to about software says that they want to make a great user experience and they often hold up a, a grandmother or such as a potential user. But the difference between actually making something good as a user experience and, you know, wanting to, there's quite a gulf sometimes and not everybody achieves that. What was the secret in your case or how did you go about doing that, how close did you get?
0: I don't know how close we got. I know how close we've got Tim, I think. And the, the difference is, you know, we've had tens of thousands of people use our tools and we are fastidious in asking them what they liked and what they didn't like. We really do want the voice of our customers in our software. And so I think fast forward five customers years- customers don't always
1: true. know what what what's no. good.
0: I, I agree with you, but I think we need to know what they think is good, right because we need that it's one piece of a ton of data. and I think now, you know you know we have a team of I don't know sixty people now, and we have three or four designers on our team. It's a huge part of our staff. What I've had investors and folks say is disproportionate. And I'm like, you missing the you're missing the boat. This is seminal, right? It's like as important, you know Marshall McLuhan said that the medium is as important as the message. In this case, I think the UX is as important as the functionality, right? And so in the early days, we got it wrong. But the great thing is because people, I had like, you know, some relationships in the sector and a lot of people wanted to use it and it was cheap. We got lots of feedback. And from that, we said, We're not going to listen to the customer. We're going to listen to the customer's problems. And there's an important distinction between those two things. The customer might say, put the button there. I'm like, maybe they're right, but maybe they're wrong. We still need to listen to them. It's just, we have to listen to them, process it, and then spit it out. And so I don't know anything about UX, but as a lawyer, I, I learned syllogisms and logic really well. I'm a logician ultimately. And so I, I saw the problem, I saw the pain points, and we built logic from there. And I think it was just a matter of iterating and reiterating and, and putting smart people around me. And I'm going to go back to that. It's a theme I've learned in entrepreneurship. It's as long as you're surrounded by smarter people who are experts at what they're doing, your job is to get the heck out of the way.
1: And the less intelligent you are, the easier it is to find people who are smarter than you.
0: Yes, sir. It's 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 made my <laughs> life easier.
1: <laughs> I can tell. So how did you transition from a free beta that you're handing out to people that you know to a paid offering? It's a
0: good question. I taught an entrepreneurship class at a local university a couple of years ago. And I think I got that question then. And I honestly don't have an answer to that. One day we said, we gave them like a year's notice and we gave like all those people who we previously had an opportunity to join the new one for free. And we said, we're gonna grandfather, grandmother your pricing in. But we're just going to turn the Spivot off for free. And we made it cheap, too cheap to start. And, you know, but we also didn't understand the value, didn't know how to promote the value, didn't know where we were going to deepen the tools. And so one day we just said, thank you for all of you. You've been important in our journey. If you want to change your package, if you want to get more, you know, content, you know, whatever it was that was the pricing back then, you're going to have to pay. You're welcome to keep it there. And we just did it. And I wish we'd done it earlier and I wish we'd ch- become more expensive because, you know, one thing I learned, and this is interesting if you give something away for free, people don't actually take the effort to use it. Some of them will, for sure. And that was the ones we, you know, received a ton of learning and feedback from. But if people pay for something, it's like, oh, I paid for this. I may as well watch Netflix or, you know, whatever it might be. If you're not paying for it, you probably aren't appreciating it that much. So I actually think. We got better customers when they paid. We got lots of them too, so we were we were, you know, privileged in that way. But I think that turning it on, and I wish we'd done it earlier, and, and a little bit more expensive to start.
1: All along your journey, there were lots of alternatives, including uh, nonprofit software aimed at sort of the long tail of the market, uh, the smaller groups. There's literally dozens of packages out there. Why were people using yours? Where was it because you were getting to them? and no one else was pushing it, what was it about your offering that was meeting with success?
0: I don't know the answer. I don't think I'll ever know, but I, I have a couple of theories. The first one is we were truly genuine in what we wanted to do for the sector. We, I came from the sector. I started working in the sector when I was three, and I'd had all these positions in the nonprofit sector. So there wasn't a, this is a software guy that sees this as a market opportunity, which by the way, most of those other tools you've talked about were people who pivoted their careers they saw vertical whatever you you know you want to call it they knew that, i think reading our origin story reading about me that it was for the sector by the sector to a degree and i know that sounds super cliche but i do think it held quite a bit of you know merit in it the second thing is we're a certified b corp and i think that's really actually quite important in our process we truly believe that empowering the sector is one of our core missions, as much as, you know, making profit and return for our shareholders, we, we got in this and we've stayed true to why we got in. it. And I think that's reflective in the staff we've been able to bring on too. They're very, they're very up tempo, high energy, push, 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 which is great for entrepreneurship, but they're also like transform the sector because that's what we deeply, deeply care about. And we think that business is a way to do good. Again, it sounds cliche, but I think it was true and lastly i'm going to go back to user experience it's good to use our tools you can plug in and you can do it and it's you know it's not a huge learning curve especially now you know you can get up and running in a matter of minutes you can get a donation form up in in an hour like you know from everything from z- purchase to that like that focus on making the grandmother to your point it actually worked for, however we did it we we did it And so I think that plus the innovation, I think we did think of things different. we did a lot of work on compliance and proceeding, automating that. And that was where being a lawyer kind of helped a lot. Um, And lastly, I think it kind of goes back to my first point. We built a genuine brand. We like really did do and want to do and work to doing the things we said we would do. And so I think the sector knows it and feels it.
1: Where'd the name come from? (laughs)
0: <laughs> good story so my family's from east africa i mentioned that earlier um so i called my dad the dad we didn't name he's like you know uh, and he's like well what do you do and i was like well we bring people together it's this is software for everyone you know like this idea but he's like why don't you use the swahili word um and i said for what he said well the, the swahili word for everything is kila kitu and the, the swahili word for everyone is kila mtu." And it was spelt K I L A. And so we started with K I L A. I was like, every, all, this is sort of aligned with what our vision is. But it was spelt K I L A. And we test, like, we brought that. And I don't know, it was my buddy or a staff member was like, that sounds like KILA. And I was like, no, 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 no. So we added two E's and we made it KILA. And it's kind of an ode to my family's history, but also our, our, you know, our global ambitions and the, ultimately the idea that we do want technology for everyone in the sector.
1: That's nice. My experience, and I suspect it's fairly universal, is that taking a company from two people or one and a half people to 60 people involves growing pains. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about like the iterations of the company as it moved along that path?
0: I mean, we're on our third or fourth version of the software. And I don't mean like release. I'm talking about like big mama release. So just from a product technical thing, we've really, you know, and again, I I give credit to Wayne and our, and our teams, whether the UX or whatever, we really take in feedback and I think, and really um, innovated around it, not listened, like you said before, but innovated around it. Um, But I think for me, we kind of, mentioned this earlier, you've got to put smart people around you. And when you do that, you've got to give them opportunity, responsibility, you've got to shut up and get out of the way. And so I think for me, it was the, you know, kind of the waves and the cycles of leaders and people that we either built internally or brought in to move it along you know first you get your first customer then you get your first 20 then you get your first 50 then you get your first 500 then you get your first 1000 whatever it might be and as that changes your processes changes your people have to change and your leadership changes and so you know i think for me personally the growing pains have have a lot been like knowing that every six to 12 months, I basically got to rethink everything. And that doesn't mean firing everybody or God, no, it just means like, you know, I probably have 60 organizational structure charts that have happened over the course of, you know, the last five years. And so I think for me, knowing that a startup, an early business, a sub, you know, I would say sub 100 or 200 staff, or I don't know what that number is at the top, but You have to be willing and able and excited to reimagine every assumption you made a year earlier. And I think that's where a lot of my growing pains have come. Um, The other thing is, you know, maybe it's a humility thing, but like what you've got to get out of the way. I remember a couple, three years ago, two, three years ago, I brought on a chief operating officer. And she basically runs one half of the business. She focuses on go-to-market sales, marketing success. I work more in the product and engineering teams. Like If I tried to micromanage her, if I tried to get in her way, if I tried to you know pass block her, she would have left and the company wouldn't have grown exponentially under her time here. So I think a lot of the growing pains are having that humility, having that uh, self-awareness, and also having that understanding that what's working now isn't going to work in six or 12 or 18 months.
1: Just being able to talk about that does indicate that you have some of that self-reflection that is a helpful quality. It's not the only way to run a business. I think it's nicer if you work for someone who, or, or, or with someone who does, who can or at least says they do. (laughs) (laughs) How have you had to grow though? Managing yourself is as hard as managing other folks or, or a whole structure.
0: Firstly, I've had to grow and I still have to grow. I really work. I work with somebody. I have incredible mentors. I have a badass wife who keeps me in line. She's an executive and a lawyer and, you know, smarter than I am. I think, you know, that idea that I am not a finished product, not unlike the software we've built, like, you know, I don't get a UX designer, I get me, right? Like, that's how I got to make my tools better. And so working with the right people, being self-aware, being honest with myself, I think I remember in my early 20s, I was at Oxford, and I I was dating a model, and I thought I was God's gift to man. I was a, you know, varsity athlete and all this kind of garbage. And then you get diagnosed with Crohn's disease, and you're like, well... That kicked my ass really well. Lying in and out of a hospital bed, I think, teaches you a lot about self-reflection. I think it took a couple years for me to embrace that kind of universe-like humility where you you can only do so much and, and there are so many things outside of your control. But also, I think being sick does teach you a lot of stuff about yourself. And so that never-finished kind of approach. I don't know that I would have taken when I was 22 years old, but certainly now in my mid to late thirties, and also being a dad. I think being a dad in the last couple of years has really helped me too, just, just to, there's so much learning. You watch somebody grow from not being able to lift their head to now, twice during this interview, he's banged on my door. Like this is a toddler. And just the idea that we're all growing and that just because he grows up doesn't mean we're not growing and, and have to kind of continue that trajectory. And so I've worked hard on it. I make mistakes. I've had to check my ego, but I've also had to adapt to change. You know, running, working with millennials is, and Gen Zs is different from working with the folks I worked with at the law firms. Corporate culture now is different. COVID, post-COVID, you know, whatever you want to call it, is is creating changes in how we work and expectations. And so, being at least a little bit cognizant of all that, hopefully, will will give me the give me the humility to keep, keep to keep growing.
1: When you were talking about uh, the founding, you said you thought about being a nonprofit, but to get funding, you went with a for-profit B Corp route. Tell me about how you funded this, to what extent it's been funded. What was that process like? What can you tell other entrepreneurs about uh, about that road?
0: Firstly, it's hard. I should start with that. It's hard. And there's a reason 999 out of every thousand startups fail. There's a reason for it. It's hard. It's It's expensive. It's exhausting but i do believe it's worth it i mentioned earlier that i borrowed money from my law school line of credit i was lucky to have it i was lucky that i had those qualifications and i I borrowed money from my mom and dad I, i went to friends and family i like you know begging bull out to try to get the first couple years of this because even though we've been very successful now in our early days you know, especially in those days, tech for nonprofits wasn't hot like it is now. Not every private equity company wanted to jump in bed with the sector. It was like a nonprofit equals no profit mentality. You know, early tech investors had no, and I'm sure you went through this in your early days, but they had no interest, none, in funding this kind of thing.
1: Well, I never even tried to raise money, but
0: <laughs> I I wish I hadn't. I just I don't code, and like so I could, I, you know, I couldn't code and we made the mistake of building too big a product. It was not, now it's deep and powerful, but in the old days it was shallow and kind of got what, but you know, so to build width and depth is expensive. And I wish I hadn't, but you know, we haven't raised a ton of money. We've been really blessed to have incredible angel investors who see the vision, who see the sector, who see the genuineness, who see that we're like obsessed with metrics and tracking our progress and not getting hung up on our own, hopes and and you know predispositions and beliefs. And so what I can tell the other entrepreneurs is if you believe you're solving a problem, if you truly believe you're solving a problem in a unique way, in a market that desperately needs it, beg, borrow, steal, don't steal, but like beg, borrow, do whatever you've got to do. Because if you really focus on that problem and solving the pains that your customers, is not what they ask for, but what they have, you will find a market or you won't. But I really believe you you will. I do believe it. But it goes back to, sorry, Nathaniel, I just want to say one thing. It goes back to that self-reflection, right? You've got to be honest about your product, about your market. Like selling it is one thing, but selling it, you know, you, you don't sell to yourself. You have to has to be there. Does that make any sense?
1: Um, I'm sure it does. <laughs> <laughs> what I would guess is that you were getting feedback from the market that was indicating to you that you had made a good call, that there was opportunity there, that you had plenty of running room in the direction that you were going. Is that right?
0: Yeah, definitely. And I, that's what I mean by listen to your customers. I don't mean listen to your customers. I mean, hear what they're saying, hear what the market is saying. hear what so you they'll buy it, it too.
1: I mean, yeah, like, exactly. Well, they were. Yeah.
0: And we right. were lucky, right? Like the minute we started getting customers who were paying and sticking around your, your month over month, year over year, that was the kind of market signal to your
1: point. When did you, Become profitable, or have we're not.
0: We're not profitable yet, and that we could be. Pro- we could be profitable. Um, we would have to cut some staff, but not a huge, huge number. It wouldn't be like eight people. Our goal is to serve twenty five thousand nonprofits. That's our target. Um, we're not there yet, and if we can do it in a way that's not dysfunctional, we're not going to go out and raise one hundred and eighty million dollars and put ping pong tables in our office. That's not the kind of company we are. I'm the kid of immigrants. I'm cheap, right? Like every dollar. I had a ping
1: pong table in my office with a very small staff and it was a very valuable thing. So, I don't. <laughs> so, so maybe that was the wrong choice of words, <laughs> but
0: I love to play ping pong. So maybe we will, but, um,
1: I mean, I would think with a tennis background, you would, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't sneer at the, at the, at us table no. tennis players. But
0: my mom and dad had a ping pong table in their house and they have one of those giant vases in the room where it is and it's filled with broken ping pong balls i don't know if my mom knows this so mom if you're listening there's like a thousand ping pong balls in there but they um, do
1: tend to break yes
0: they they do yes sir um (laughs) you know i think the market gave us really good feedback we were able to say you know um this is worth the growth cost and it wasn't runaway growth cost it was measured it was you know, articulated, it was backed by, you know, the right people with the right minds and the right experience. We haven't taken real institutional capital um, yet, or we don't know if we will, but I think we chose to not be profitable because we are chasing that growth number without being irresponsible in doing it.
1: Where do you want to take this? My experience was, I didn't think about that. I remember some, one of my employees asking me maybe around the stage that you're in, like, what was my exit plan. And, and I was like, what are you talking about? I was trying to keep the friggin' thing afloat and growing and it was doing well, but I had no, I didn't have a plan for that. You are much more conscious. I think just from hearing you talk about the fact that this is a, a, a part of an ecosystem that has some very large players. There's been a fair amount of conglomeration going on uh acquisition m whatever we want to say at places with a lot of opportunities to probably become wealthy or at some point along the line to to do so or to bring your software to more people faster mm-hmm.
0: so i think that latter uh, part is really interesting to me
1: yeah tell me how you're thinking in this sort of like the future of the company the future of najid and wayne you know, like those are things that those are things that one has to balance when you're leading it. And there's not necessarily a right decision beyond what's in your heart or you know, however you you go about making big decisions in life.
0: So lots to unpack in that. And I'll say a couple of things. Wayne and I are crazy. I want to start by saying that. We've both turned down big money and other jobs, whether it's corporate law, corporate engineering, like we love to build stuff, like to be really honest with you. You know, we're we're kind of um like, we're, we're both a little bit nuts in that way. Our favorite times are when we're arguing about a product decision. Like, we love the, the hustle, I think. And so we also, you know, Wayne's family is from Vietnam. His dad was a diplomat. Um, he, you know, he also is called to serve. I mean, you know, for the longest period of time, I thought I would run for public office. And so I never expected a big paycheck. Nathaniel, uh, I expect an opportunity. I want to put my kids through school, and I know um, that's expensive. So I got to deal with that. And I was actually saying to my wife, "All I care about is." Actually, yesterday we we're talking about this. What do we need to do to set our? our, our we have one, and I'm, we're in negotiations about a second. That's what happens when two lawyers are married to each other. But you know, apart from that, you know, I, I think we're really whether it's my wife and I or or Wayne and, and our whole team are really compelled to serve. So while we need to do good by our angel investors and make sure that they're taken care of, ultimately, you know, a big part of our decision making around this is is sort of driven by two important factors. One, Can we continue to innovate? Because the danger of getting eaten in a conglomerate is cut and profit, cut and profit. And what gets cut? Innovation. And our sector, as I mentioned before, is desperately in need for continued innovation, not only because it's the right thing to do, but because it's the right thing to do. You know, like innovation is good for business, but more importantly, it's good for giving and it's good for the sector. And, you know, we want nonprofits to thrive and continue to build communities. And so, if we get to continue to build stuff, if we get to continue to take this to tens and tens of thousands more nonprofits, our clients raised like hundreds of millions of dollars last, last year. How do I turn that into billions, right? Like, how do I help them do better work and save more money and time? And so, whatever decision we make in the long run has got to allow us to innovate and allow us to continue to scale of course there are the realities. You know What I've said is I don't care if somebody owns the share certificates or I own some of them. It doesn't really matter to me. As long as my staff are taken care of, my shareholders are taken care of, my clients aren't screwed over. I'm a sucker. I donate to so many of my customers because I really love the work they're doing. And I don't want someone to come in and, and undercut them and swipe them and we have such an incredible opportunity and, 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 and a willing audience who's listening to, you know, us driving change in the sector and how they work. And I don't want to lose that.
1: Um, Max, who introduced us, was helping with M&A for every action. Is that how you got to know him?
0: I think so. I think it is how I got to know him. Yes, I think so um max i don't know if he's like a closet canadian or he's just tell like he's dual right he's american and canadian so i think we originally bonded over our our love of politics and our canadianness whatever wherever we met we sort of hit it off he's he's become he's become a wonderful friend
1: what would you tell other entrepreneurs about the phase of the company that you're in like here's what i think i think without knowing you more than this conversation without knowing your company more than looking at the website and hearing you talk about it like when you have a company you've built that's an organism that you're continuing to shape that you take pride in that is meeting with approval of the world it's always mixed but Sounds like mostly positive.
0: Yeah, I mean, as much as we can hope for.
1: I mean, that is a highly enviable spot to be in and not one that is easy to duplicate. It took a lot of effort and good luck and timing and the choice of going after an area that mattered to you and just so many things lined up and the amount of time you had in your life, the alignment of good fortune. Like, that is hard to give up, isn't it? It's also
0: it's lucky too. And I want you said it. it is like, I am lucky. We are lucky. We did as much. We did a lot of wrong things, but a lot of right things, but without that luck, we wouldn't be here. So I couldn't agree with more.
1: Yeah. And I'm not emphasizing that. I also felt very lucky at a similar stage with my company, but I knew also that it was the product of a tremendous amount of hard work by the people around me, sometimes by me and good decisions. And also just like trying to be good to the clients, trying to, to have good relationship, trying to support well, trying to make a product that you could be proud of, all of those things, and the efforts to organize yourself and sell it, and all of that comes together. But here you are, you're sitting in this stage, which is, it's way down the road from someone who's just contemplating an idea, and it's also way short of the development of other companies that have been around longer. Right. So here you are on this point in a path. How are you thinking about what to do?
0: It's interesting. You you asked that and you asked a similar I don't know if it's a similar question you meant it to be, but it's similar to me in that it takes a certain amount of self-reflection. Getting us to where we are now is great, you know. But if I want my customers to raise five billion dollars over the next three years, right, for example, or some stupidly large number like that, I may not be the CEO to get us there. I just may not be the guy or the woman to do that. I think it comes down to having again that self-awareness as difficult, painful, exhausting, terrifying by the way, that it is. I left a corporate law to do this. I don't know what I do next. To, like I have no idea. Um but I also have to understand that I have both a legal and a moral duty towards my shareholders and to my customers and to my staff. And so as i think about these decisions i have to understand that it may not be me that's the best suited to this and um maybe it is i hope it is i hope that our you know our board and our clients and ultimately really most importantly our staff continue to see um see me as the right leader but i don't make promises to myself because ultimately again it goes back to lying in a hospital bed If there are better people that can do this better, that can take us to that next level, I got to be open to that. And whether that means being acquired or replaced or some combination of them or leaving me exactly how I am, that could be the way. My answer to that is that process is ongoing. How about that? Emotionally, internally. And that was, I think, what you were asking about.
1: I had a very similar outlook. I'm still not sure many years later after decisions have been made, Whether I was really smart to know that about myself and I sort of stepped out of the way um, of someone else to lead it, or whether I sold myself short because, like, what I see in you is like there's this passion and there's this connection to the roots of the company and to the sector that nobody else can have. And even if like you're an imperfect person as as I am, even if there are things- Definitely, my you, wife
0: will remind you I am, I promise you that.
1: <laughs> I'm worried that some people with the qualities that have some humility, that have some insight into themselves, sometimes take themselves out of the, the CEO role to the benefit of someone who's maybe, uh, maybe will run the company in a faster, bigger way, but might lose some of the soul of it. Right. I'm not, say, not, I'm not saying that's what happened with me, but like, could that could happen to you or you could imagine that? Right.
0: I've imagined it. So, of course, I've imagined it. I my, the name of the company has family origins. This, even though I don't own like 90% of the company, but even if I owned one share in the company, this is personal. Like, I, I, I wear this company on my heart sleeve. I'll tell you an adjustment I had to make when the staff was no longer so small that I had a personal relation. Of course I know them all, but like what I would, you know, I can be cordial. I can be respectful. I can be friendly, but the early five, 10, 15, I was friends with, like, there were people that I would say I had love for, I cared about, you know, I remember that transition being really painful for me. It was, I think about the 20 staff mark when I was like, these people work for the company I work for, they're not your friends, Najee. They probably can't or shouldn't be your friends. And I remember feeling heartbroken about that. And so and I bring that up because I feel like it's almost similar emotionally. This company is personal, just like those people were personal to me, right? And so what I hope and the way that I kind of put it out to the universe and say is I continue to get better as a leader. I continue to push myself. I continue to make great decisions and put strong people around me that the folks who support us, whether it's our board or potentially a company that acquires us, will see me or us as worth investing in. And maybe that's my naivety, but it is what it is. And as long as my heart is in the right place and I'm working really, 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 really hard at it, I got to leave the rest to the rest. You know, like that's just what's going to happen.
1: So who's kind of your modal client?
0: Um... So we have a couple of products in the market now, which is really interesting. Um, but the core Kila product is is a kind of an organization around five million dollars, three to five million, two to five. We have lots that are subbed that, but um, who have, you know, kind of doing uh, a year, sorry, five a year in revenue and, not, and don't fundraising. They're doing individual fundraising. They care about things like marketing and fundraising. They are engaging with their donors. It's not like eight donors writing massive checks every year. There's a degree of personal giving. Um, generally, they have folks that have at least one, but usually like up to five or six or seven, depending on the org, full-time fundraising staff. But most importantly, they want to grow. They want to get better. They want to be better organizations. They're willing to look at tweaking some of the way they've done things in the past. There's a lot of orgs that are very set in their ways, and that's absolutely their prerogative. Like I just talked about me continuing to grow, I feel like our sector needs to continue to grow and innovate and adopt new technology like artificial intelligence and, you know, engaging with new avenues of giving and you know, working with how the transition of wealth to millennials and Gen Z is going to change giving my dream customers, folks that are at least, even if they don't know what the heck to do with that, they're at least starting to think about these changes are coming.
1: You mentioned some high tech stuff there. How are you incorporating the latest, the AI, the predictive analytics, things like that into fundraising?
0: So, you know, I, I was in the shower it's going to get very intimate, but it's not. Don't worry. Um, in the shower a couple of years ago, and one of my team members had pitched. This is like two years ago, maybe. Pitched this sales tool to help us understand our our potential customers' buying signals, and it was using predictive analytics and artificial intelligence. And I was like, you know, he he convinced me, and I, you know, said fine, buy the tool, make sure it works, and you know the ROI is good, and then I kind of forgot about it. I was in the shower that day, and I was thinking, wait a second. Sales and fundraising are so similar. They're so similar. Why isn't that being used effectively in in our sector? And it kind of got me thinking like, I want to bring predictive analytics to the sector. And that was kind of this fleeting idea. I took it to a couple of the devs at the time, and they're like, well, actually, there's a lot we can do. A CRM, a donor management tool, has a lot of data and historical data that can help us see patterns that no human can possibly see on her own. It's just not possible. And so, I kind of convinced like one person at the time to kind of like, I asked the board for a blessing, so to speak. And they're like, yeah, go do it and stop talking about it. And you know, if it works great. And, and that was the start of, you know, we built over the past few years, we've built what I would say is like one of the sectors leading predictive analytics tools. We take all the data from your email marketing, um, from, um, your CRM, from your giving history, from interactions and data, and we can actually predict, when people are likely to make a donation, how much money to ask them for, what campaigns they're likely to give, whether they're ready or you know imminent giving, you can actually look at AI to help predict donor behavior, and that becomes a tool for the sector. It's not replacing fundraisers. It's just making them less stressed and giving them another piece of data.
1: That sounds like it's based on the information in their CRM, in your tool. Um, there's... A lot of external data, the wealth engines of the world, the people who maintain databases on donors with information about them. Do you bring any of that in?
0: The one you mentioned, we do, but there's others too. I don't. We don't pick favorites. We're pretty agnostic on that. But like, there are great tools that can predict. Um, um, you know, they don't really predict anything. They just give you data to enrich things about Nathaniel, for example, right? And you know, on top of that you know we work with in, with social media we work with census data we work with these big you know big data sets that are publicly available we've got a data science team that is bringing that to the sector and that's actually a product that we you know we've kind of spun out and are now working to integrate into other cr so whether you use you know salesforce or razor's edge or neon or any of the tools we partnered with you know especially the market tools we think that you know we can be a leader in providing the whole sector with with, with access to... So the, again, it levels the playing field. It doesn't matter who you are. You can have powerful AI helping your fundraising because that should be a tool just like giving a receipt to a donor. It's got to be part of your fundraising process. And, and that's a big belief of ours internally.
1: What percentage of your client base is like Canadian, US, or elsewhere in the world?
0: Yeah, good question. I, no, these numbers are very like round for lack of a better word but it's about 55 american 40 canadian and about five australia new zealand uk a couple of splatterings
1: english but it's really, speaking yeah
0: yeah speaking common law jurisdictions that's where we go to right because i can do the charity law <laughs> to be honest
1: you know it's um, super interesting to hear your story is there a question that i failed to ask that i should have
0: no, I don't think so. you're a good interviewer. I really enjoyed this conversation, so so thank you. Um, I googled you when Max introduced us, and and you know you've spoken with the humility that I you know aspire to on this call. You're a pretty impressive guy, and I think I have a lot to learn from you. So I do hope that whether it's on a podcast or offline, I get the opportunity to kind of pick your brain and to seek advice and support from you in, in the months and years to come. Because I love to hear, and I guess I'm grateful for the opportunity to share my story, but just you know, people who, who, who have that MO, that outlook, the way that I do about the sector, about the world and and the humility to, to, to share their stories like you have in, in the right way. And I I feel grateful. So, so thank you.
1: Honored by that comment. Thank you. Anything else you want to say?
0: Thanks for the time. Would love to love to do it again. And I'm happy to happy to be here. So thank you.
1: Cool. Well, I'll, I'll catch up with you down the road, perhaps. So that was Najid. Najid is at Keela, K E E L A dot C O. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.